You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's great to have you here. Happy Easter. Welcome to Thrive. And today we celebrate as we now look at Matthew chapter 28 and the resurrection account in this one gospel. You can follow along, by the way, uh, through the version of the Bible app. There are notes for this message, and you can uh, kind of get it through the method you find out on the screen right now. But let's read now Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to, the, to see the tomb, and behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Resurrection, really? I mean, do you really believe this even happened? You know, our culture is um, skeptical about everything. You've got to prove it. So skeptical, even if you are not skeptical yourself of miracles or the resurrection itself or what the gospel says, we have to tackle this issue. Otherwise, we'd be irresponsible. You might not struggle with any of this. You may have never had doubts about the veracity of the resurrection or anything else, but I dare say um, your relatives probably have, and if not them, your neighbors, your co-workers. So we're going to be tackling that, and it's not good enough to just say, well, the Bible says he was raised, or mom told me (laughs) when I was a kid, or the preacher said, that's not going to be good enough. It just doesn't work that way. So we're going to be asking that question today, did the resurrection actually happen? But then secondly, we have to ask the question, what does it mean for us? Because it's not good enough just to look at the historical evidence for a resurrection. 
you can believe that and still have no impact. You know, recently, um, by the way, I just read again that today or yesterday, um, the Mars uh, probe landing, you know, this uh, man-made vehicle that's on the face of Mars, the helicopter just launched today and is going to be flying around a little on Mars in that thin atmosphere and land again. Next, it's pretty cool stuff, right? Historical facts. But tell me, um, the fact that we have actually had these automated machines from Earth reach Mars. Has that really changed your life in any way? Probably not too much. Maybe for the scientists involved. You know, they're excited and ecstatic. But for the rest of us, eh, no difference. So it's possible to even say, yeah, I guess Jesus rose from the dead in some way, metaphorically, or it probably something happened. Probably most Americans still have that feel to it, even though now the percentage of those who are actually connected to uh, Christian fellowship is reduced and reduced and reduced a little more. But it's still not making an impact in their lives, you know? It's just another historical fact. So we've got to ask these two questions. Did it really happen? And what does it mean for us? We're going to start with the first, though. Did it really happen? Now, you know, uh, we have a campus ministry at FGCU, and happy Easter, all students who are probably home with their families right now, many of them. No spring break this year in the state of Florida for all college students, so they said, this weekend, I'm off. I'm going, you know, so that's great. Um, but at a university campus, often... Um, you know, there's kind of this thought, you know, in different religion classes that might be that Jesus, um, he was a great moral teacher, and boy, he got himself into tragically killed, got into a lot of trouble, and over the years, the disciples, you know, they, they basically developed a higher and higher appreciation for everything that he taught and everything that he did, and so the stories started being told by oral tradition, and then they were expanded upon to the point where they started to say, hey, he must have been divine, and then the Son of God, and then the resurrection stories added, and finally, they wrote him down in the Gospels. And that's how Christianity developed. Sounds reasonable, except for the fact that every fact in that little explanation has been proven to be totally untrue. Now, it's probably a combination of Philosophy 101 and religion classes and the Da Vinci Code. Have you read that book? <laughs> totally fictitious. It's all wrong. Every part of it. Because we found out, we know for sure, the New Testament documents did not get slowly developed over decades and decades and decades and finally written down 100 or 200 years later. In fact, the earliest records are probably from the Apostle Paul, the book of 1 Thessalonians, written about 15 years after the resurrection. And all the Gospels were written within the lifetime of the people involved in the Gospel itself. Matthew was written, the one that we just read, probably by 60, 70 A.D., within 30 years. But can you trust what they wrote, you might ask? Can you trust what these documents say? And I think this is where, um, you might not be into it, I understand, but Richard Bauckham, who is a, um, a great scholar at, I believe, St. Andrews University in Scotland, 
He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He's written a number of extensive works. He's looked at this one fact of these ancient documents, 2,000-ish years old, how reliable can they be? And he has documented meticulously all the different individuals that are mentioned in the Gospels in the New Testament letters. And what he has found out is they're kind of like the footnotes the, uh, you want to find out what this was all about? Just go ask them. Because you see, what has happened is, well, for instance, here's an example. Luke chapter 7. There's a story that Jesus comes into this small town called Nain. Very small town, right? Any of you grow up in a small town? I grew up in a smallish town of 3,000 or so. But we're talking probably 350 people, small town. He goes into this town of Nain, and there's a widow. Well, she's a widow now, and, well, she was a widow, and she had one son who died, and they were having a funeral, and Jesus comes up to the funeral procession and raises this son from the dead. And you're going like, okay, well, that's a nice little story. Here's the reality is that the Gospel of Luke was written within the lifetime of both the son's life, the widow's life, and everyone who was an eyewitness to that account within 30 years of that event. If you're going to try to come up with a story, a miracle story, and tell it about a little small town, <laughs> you better do it about 150 years after everybody who has lived at that time to create a legend. Do you understand? You, you write a story within 30 years of the uh, reported event, you've got dozens and dozens of people who could just go like, uh, excuse me, that didn't happen here. They become the eyewitnesses, the verification for these events. So what do we conclude from that? We conclude that basically the resurrection, in fact, was not a later accretion. These stories have witnesses in them. And you find out that the Gospels are not just persuasive documents to try to get you to believe, but they are also attesting to historical events. There's really also no early record of Christianity that doesn't include the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not like they told stories for dozens and dozens of years. You can't find one document that's just talking about Jesus um, and what he taught. And then later on, at the resurrection itself was the primitive form of the gospel always there. N.T. Wright puts it this way, there is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him to life again. Not a later development. Not at all. So these are historical documents. But you might ask the question, can you believe that the resurrection even happened? Okay. So from Matthew's Gospel, as we've read it before, we're going to look at three different points today. The existence of the women at the tomb, the non-gullibility of the eyewitnesses, and the changed lives of the eyewitnesses. It's three proofs within this one text itself that show the veracity of these, this story in the resurrection account. First of all, the existence of the women at the tomb. I don't know if you've ever thought of it. But uh, Matthew 28 says, uh, verse 8 says, So they departed quickly, that is the women, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So this text, the Gospel of Matthew, says the women were the first at the tomb. But not just this Gospel. 
every one of the Gospels, all four Gospels, the first witnesses and the only witnesses at first, there were no men in the groups, were women. And the women here are probably saying, yeah, that's about right. Nobody else wanted to get up that early, <laughs> do the work of helping and prepare. The, the, here's the thing, though. For the first century AD, that would be problematic and shocking. You see, if you, uh, in that day and age, I'm sorry, that's that day and age, but in that day and age, women were considered unreliable witnesses. They couldn't even testify in the court of law because people would just dismiss it. Ah, it's just a bunch, you know how, I mean, even today, women sometimes are not correct. We've had a kind of a coming to terms with how women's stories are not treated as real today, let alone 2000. I'm not saying it was a good thing that happened back then that way, but culturally, women were dismissed. So if you're going to create a story and try to verify and have an airtight lawyer type case to the resurrection, the last people you would have at the tomb as the only people to witness the empty tomb at the beginning are women. So why are they there? Because the only reason, it seems, would be that that's the way it happened. N.T. Wright even says um, in one of his books, he has this book, it's about like this thick, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's great. It goes into all the historical analysis of every, um, like from every ancient culture from Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Roman, the Greeks, uh, Jewish understanding, the first temple, uh, uh, first century Jewish, second temple understanding, all this stuff about resurrection and what this means in life after death and all this stuff. And he says there would have been great pressure among the gospel writers to actually just, you know, not share these stories about the women at the tomb, to just skip over them to when Jesus appears to Peter and John or to the disciples in the locked room, which we also have in the New Testament. Just skip over these. Why? Because the Gospels don't have everything that ever happened in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John even says so much as that because there's no way to record everything. So N.T. Wright says there would have been, but what you find out is the one thing the gospel writers want to make sure is to record what happened that day, no matter how messy or problematic it might seem at the time, because that's the way it was. Fascinating, isn't it? It kind of substantiates even more in the time of the day that these gospels were written that this story is true. The credibility. So that's the first point. Secondly, though, the non-gullibility of eyewitnesses, because you're probably going, like, well, that's great. But you know, in that day and age, they were not very scientific. It wasn't a modern time at all. They weren't critical thinkers. They just took things, and, and they believed. Well, if they couldn't understand something naturally, that it was a miracle. And so they could believe in miracles all the time. And you're right that a lot of people believed in miracles back then. But this is what the text actually says here. In Matthew 28 that we read, verse 16 to 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some, what did they do? 
they doubted. Isn't that fascinating? Again, if you're a lawyer trying to make an airtight case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, would you ever put in the fact that some of his first disciples doubted him? Doesn't that kind of like undermine what you're trying to say? Wouldn't you instead have written, and they were filled with joy and boldness and confidence in Jesus, right? And what you get is the first disciples look like, well, kind of a mess, broken people, real. You know, fairy tales, legends, they're the ones that talk about, oh, and yes, this is so true and certain and absolute. But what we find out is the first disciples, even when they could touch him, they could see him, they were around him. After his death, they still doubted. Um, doesn't that sound real? Wouldn't that be the case for you or for me? If I had seen Jesus die on the cross, be placed in the tomb, and then he would appear to me later after stories of his... Wouldn't I be like, wait, wait a minute, what am I seeing now? What, what's going on here? Um, what did I eat? Were those mushrooms really... You know, I would start thinking through all the possibilities of how... Maybe... And so were they. And you say, well, but people back then, they would believe, they wouldn't look at it scientifically, they would believe that the miracles happened. Yes, we have different reasons to doubt the resurrection than the disciples. But the disciples also had reason to doubt. They were not just first century people, they were first century Jewish disciples. And here's the reality. Um, they... they would not come up with a story like this. This was unbelievable to a first century Jew. Oh yeah, they believed in a resurrection that would happen at the end of time and everybody, every believer would be raised and everyone, and then when that happened, then the world would be like the Garden of Eden again and God's glory would be evident, but no one in the first century could believe or had any suspicion of believing someone would be resurrected in the middle of resurrected in the middle of history, not resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated. The, 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 the son of the widow at Nain was resuscitated to live the normal life again and then die. But this is a resurrection from the dead, never to die again. Do you get it? No one believed this. Well, first century, uh, yeah, you know, if you dismiss people in the first century for what they could or couldn't believe because you think they're naive and ignorant and all, guess what? That's called um, chronological snobbery. Yeah, you know, as if our IQs are so much greater than it. <laughs> IQs have not improved, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Notice the last couple of years what some people have believed in, you know, and believe is real when it's just a bunch of conspiracy theories. It's amazing what happens. Now, in addition to this, like I said, these disciples were Jewish disciples. One thing you did never do, would never touch, would never even consider after the history of the Jewish people where they had been taken into exile and lost their land, lost their entire uh, future in their mind because of idolatry. 
worshiping false gods. The last thing you would do, and you will find this as the case, archaeologically you cannot find. Uh, prior to um, 586 BC, when Israel was taken into exile into Babylon, you will find in the strata of different archaeological digs, different idols and household gods and stuff, after 586 BC when they came back to the land, you can't find one. None. The one thing they wanted to make sure was never, ever to give divine honor or glory or worship to anything but the one true God. And in our text, you will see two different locations. The women bow down at his feet and worship him. And the disciples later on also worship this human being. Guess what that means? They must have been convinced in some weird way that he was God. They must have had enough evidence for skeptical minds of the first century that would not be gullible to believe in a resurrection of one person in the middle of history to have everything change. That's why N.T. Wright summarizes his giant book uh, with this statement. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had, they developed that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of these two phenomena, that they had an empty tomb and they saw Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. And boy, did their lives change. That's our third point. When Jesus comes to them at the end of the gospel here and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. You know what's amazing to me is that they kind of basically say, okay. <laughs> Jesus is saying to them, you peasants, you people without any money or any real you know, skills, no knowledge, no... You, Tax collectors, fishermen, peasants, you know, men, women, a um, couple dozen people here. You go out and change the world. And they basically say, sure thing. And they do. And they do. How would you ever even say yes to something as comprehensive and crazy and expansive as all authority in heaven? Who says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me except the one who actually did rise from the dead? Do you understand? I mean, I've seen egos around, but nothing quite like this. And they do this, and they risk their lives, and they lose their lives, and they give of themselves, and they absolutely have a changed life. So, is it real? Just from this one gospel account, we could look at other um, apologetics, as it's called, for the resurrection. But just from this one gospel, we see the veracity of this. And secondly, now, we're going to also say, but what does it mean? What matter? does this have in my life? What difference is it going to make? I think Matthew hints at what should be happening in your life and mine in this gospel as he records. He's the only one to record this little detail, by the way, in Matthew 28, 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
Okay, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled the stone away and sat on it. Eugene Peterson talks about this and says this earthquake then expands through the rest of this text. And he says this, what it tells us is the resurrection is earth shaking. Matthew reports the resurrection event as something like the explosion of a bomb that throws out waves of energy. The earthquake becomes an image used to dramatize the historical impact of Christ raised from the dead. And you see how this happens in this text with all the different ways people respond to the gospel in this text. It's all over the charts. So we find out here a number of places in it. The guards had first trembled and became like dead men, and the women depart quickly. They run from the tomb in joy and fear. Okay? And then they come and bow at his feet and worship him. The chief priests, they bribe the the, the um, the guards and say, tell the people that he, the, the disciples stole the body. The guards, they take the money and do as they're told. And the disciples see him, worship him, and doubt him. What you find is every reaction under the sun. It's like the explosion happens and people react and respond to it in different ways of fear and trembling and joy and doubt and rejection. But what you don't see is somebody saying, well, isn't that interesting? Well, that's nice. Oh. Can we have Easter brunch now? You don't see any of that. You don't see this mild reaction to Jesus. You have either a rejection and a rebellion against this whole idea, a try to suppress, suppress the whole event, or you see they're bowing down and worshiping. So what's your response going to be to this? How are you going to respond to this? Does this make an impact as Matthew is saying, is this shaken up your life so that all of a sudden everything's a bit different? And the difference I believe that it's supposed to make is in the promise that Jesus gives here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, where he says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always. He has now fulfilled that promise through death and resurrection. I am with you. The promise that was given by the angel to Mary at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew saying, and you will have a son, you will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's the most amazing promise that God is with you. And we're not meaning like, you know, a historical, yes, I know Jesus is right here in my memories. It's kind of like, you know, oh, um, I, 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 you know, I believe George Washington exists. And, you know, I really like George Washington as a president. So when I read a biography about George Washington, it feels like George Washington is right here. That's not the kind of with you that Jesus is talking about. Notice in this text, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know? And like the, the creed that was um, in the video at the beginning of this message says, he is now at the right hand of God. The New Testament talks about how Jesus and is at the right hand, the throne of God. That is an image not to say that God, Jesus has left planet Earth. He just said he is with us always, but that he is in the position of all authority and power. He has power over death and life and everything. There is a human being at the center of the history of the world and the future direction of everything in all creation so that he is with you always and he is bringing with you everything he has fulfilled 
through his life, death, and resurrection. Not just any human being happens to be at the center of the universe, but the one who has died for you, the one who has suffered for you, the one who has forgiven you, the one who loves you, the one who has poured his life out for you, who has given up everything willingly to you. And you might be going like, well, that's great, but really, is he with me? Because this last year has been very difficult, and I'm seeing all sorts of problems. How in the world is God with me if this is going on? His death and resurrection, I think, answer that question because the disciples themselves on Friday, just two days ago, would say the same thing. It's like, how does this work? The Messiah. The one we, he's rejected. He is thrown out. He is treated like a criminal by everyone and he dies. How can this possibly turn out? And if God can use the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he can use anything for our good. The New Testament asserts that what Jesus experienced on the cross, though dark and difficult, turns for our good. That ultimately, God can use anything and will use everything and has control of all history and all time. And you will have a happy ending. He has redirected your future simply by uniting himself with you so that you now are his and he is yours. And there is no way that you will not be with him forever. Right in the middle of your story right now, even in the most difficult year that you have faced, in the most difficult and tragic or darkest times in your life, God is with you and will use it ultimately for your good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who became, uh, well, he was a Christian martyr. Uh, He was um, shot to death by the, the Nazis, you know, executed. Right before the firing squad, he said this, This is the end, for me, the beginning of life, because of the resurrection. Your end will be a new beginning. But not just for you, not just for me, not just for us together, but for the whole of creation. God is going to have history turn out the way that he wants and intends. Everything united in Jesus Christ, everything reflecting his glory, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and call Jesus as Lord to the glory of the Father. That is the reality because of the resurrection. And that's why Eugene Peterson says this, no event in history rivals the resurrection and its impact on human will. The way a person responds to it is the most characteristic and significant response he will ever make. Consider that today. What is your response? Did it really happen? Yeah. What difference does it make? Let's pray. Lord God, um, it is an earthquake. It's a shock. You just blew up all our plans and all our directions, all our status quo. We thank you for that, Jesus Christ, because it was a mess. We were so broken. We were so rebellious. You've given us a new future. I pray now, Lord, as everyone is contemplating the gospel resurrection message today, Lord. Lord, we want to have a response like the women at the tomb, who, yes, in shock and in fear, but with joy, would worship you. 
<laughs> There's no other real good response, Lord. You know how people have dismissed who've yawned, who were, have been bored and cheered, whatever, Lord. I know. I've had the, maybe we have doubts too, Lord, but we know that you answer them all because you are the answer to them all, Lord Jesus. And I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would come into our hearts and lives right now, Lord Jesus, with your resurrection power. There are people in our congregation and those online today that need your resurrection power right now, Lord, to be able to see it and experience it. For those who are healing, uh, for those who are at home right now, for those who have faced grief and loss, Lord God, we pray that you would show your resurrection power to them, that you would be, as you are, the resurrection and the life. Give them hope. Fill them with joy. Know that they will be united with you forever and that those who have died in the faith will be right by our side when we are united with you, Lord Jesus. We pray for healing for Chris Rodriguez, for uh, the Grisky's grandson, Chris, as well, Lord for Kai, for Rachel, for those who are facing cancer and a difficult diagnosis, for Evelyn, who is still recovering at home, we pray for your healing upon them, Lord, that they would know the power of your resurrection and be, Lord, drawn close to you, Lord Jesus. For all these things, Lord God, we lift up to you and we praise you this day because you have been raised to life and therefore, Lord, you've made all the difference for us. All this we pray In your most powerful name, Lord Jesus, amen.